we will review a little bit about uh, thin lenses, which we covered last time. We're not spending a lot of time on that, mostly because um, you should have already covered this to some extent in Physics 52 or in a different undergraduate class. Um, so we're going to go on and talk about thick lenses. Not that thick lenses are more interesting or that we encounter them more frequently, but the formalism we use to describe them is this ABCD formalism, or paraxial ray matrices. It's incredibly useful. It's useful for examining complex optical systems in ways that you can't just draw ray diagrams and use the thin lens equations. Um, and it's also extremely useful because it gets recycled when you do lasers and talk about Gaussian beam propagation. Okay, so uh, a few things on thin lenses. Um, I have these charts that describe the images formed by a lens of focal length f with an object at various positions. And it's worth going through and uh, identifying for both types of lenses, a converging lens and a diverging lens, how the image behaves. So let's draw a focal length on our diagram and start with an object that's at infinity. And for our purposes, anything beyond 2f we'll see has the same behavior. Um, we can draw a ray diagram or we can use our thin lens equation, which remember looked like this, where SO was the object distance. And so if SO is large, then this term becomes small, and SI has to be close to the focal length. We can draw a ray diagram, and I'm just going to do it by hand here. I think I can, well, just as I say, I think I can do a decent job. I doing these wavy lines. Parallel ray is going to go through the focal point. A ray through the center. is going to continue on. And so let me pick, um, I know that if the object distance is at infinity, the image distance is going to be at f. We said that last time. We can see it from this equation. And if the object distance is, as it comes in from infinity, what does the image distance have to do? So let's see, let's plug in a number here. Let's try, say, 3f. Well, then I can say that this term has to be 2 over 3f, or f equals The image distance is 3 halves f. So as the object gets closer, the image gets further. And so what I drew was basically an object at about 3f. And I'm seeing it image at about 1 and a half times f. Okay, so in this case, as I bring my object in from infinity, 
my image, which starts at f, then moves out. And when I get to 2f, that's the point where I said last time that the image will be as close as it can be at 2f on the other side. Okay, so from infinity to 2f for the object, the image goes from f to 2f. Uh, what are the properties of this image? Is this a real or a virtual image? It's real because the rays are actually converging at that point. So the type is real. The location is going to be between f and 2f. Uh, orientation, it's inverted. And the relative size. Not so clear from that diagram. So let's use our equation for the magnification. The negative sign just tells us it's, it's inverted. We're going to have a positive value for SI and a positive value for S0 because they're on opposite sides. And the image distance is between f and 2f. The object distance is greater than 2f. So the denominator here is greater than the numerator. So this is going to be, uh, this is going to have a magnification or absolute value of magnification that's less than one. So the relative size is smaller. At 2f, the image will also be at 2f. So my thin lens equation, if I plug in 2f for the object distance and I plug in 2f for the image distance, this adds up to 1 over f. Right? The magnification then, if the object and image distance are the same, magnification is unity, the image is inverted. So I'll leave it as an exercise for you to fill in the rest of the table. Uh, there's what it looks like, if you want to scribble that down. This is in your book as well. And you can do the same thing for diverging lenses, and I suggest you do that. Uh, it's not an assigned homework, but it's a worthwhile exercise. And despite being worthwhile, I'm not going to do any more of it right now. Milton? For diverging lens, would F be a negative number? So F would be negative, yeah. So for a diverging lens, F is negative. Although, when we talk about the location, maybe I should have drawn absolute values. And then this is just wrapping up the uh, chapter two in the discussion from last time. We talked about thin lenses. Well, mirrors also can focus light. And so you can treat mirror as having similar behavior as a lens. One of the quantities which would define a curved mirror would be the location of its center of curvature. 
And one of the interesting things about an image that's located at the center of curvature of a curved mirror is any rays coming from that image, what is their angle of incidence going to be at that local point on the mirror? It's going to be normal. Yeah. So they'll all reflect right back. So all the rays that hit that mirror are going to reflect right back and produce an image at the object location. Okay, so what that means is if we wanted to talk about the effective focal length of a mirror, we know that if the object distance and the image distance are both r, that that effective focal length, then if, it, if the mirror obeys the same thin lens equation, that effective focal length, well, I can leave it like that. is r over 2. Okay, Now, this mirror that I drew here, is that radius of curvature positive or negative? It's negative. Remember, if, it's, uh, if you measure, with, if you put your uh, origin at the vertex of the mirror, if the center of curvature is on the left, it's negative. So that's negative. So I actually should write this as the effective focal length is minus r over 2. So when I plug in a negative value, I get a positive focal length, meaning it's a converging mirror. Okay, So we have this imaging equation for a mirror of curvature r. So that's identical to the thin lens equation, except that we have an effective focal length of minus r over 2. This is negative. The center of curvature comes before the surface. Yeah? Okay. I'll fix that. So if you catch something in the notes during class and you point it out, that's great. And I'll probably fix it after class. But if you also post it to the web page, even though it may seem redundant, then you'll get credit for it because I won't remember to assign credit you know, after the fact. So go ahead and post that. You'll get a point of extra credit. And it'll also remind me, in case I forget after class, that I need to fix this in the notes. OK, so that, that's the, the end of our discussion of, of uh, thin lenses and, and mirrors. Let's go on and talk about thick lenses. And everything we talk about with thick lenses can be applied to thin lenses, just you take the limit as the thickness goes to zero. Okay, so one of the problems with thick lenses is that this idea that you measure everything with respect to the center of the lens, or for thin lenses, we said it didn't really matter whether you measure image and object distances to the center or to the vertex, because it's thin, right? So those positions are basically identical. But for a thick lens, we are not going to assume that. And one of the results of that is that the uh, thick lens actually has different focal lengths, depending on which way you illuminate it. So if you illuminate it from the left with collimated light, it's going to focus to a certain point. And if you illuminate it from the right with collimated light, it's going to focus to a point that's, at, that's not necessarily um, the same distance from the lens 
as when you use the lens in the other direction. Okay, now if the lens, if the curvature of the two sides is identical, so that it's a symmetric lens, then the problem has to be symmetric and those distances are the same. But if it's, for example, a plano convex lens or two different radiuses of curvature, you're not going to have this, what's called the front focal length, the same as the back focal length. Yeah, All Wade? Um, no. You might be given the radius of curvature of the surfaces and the thickness. Those would be physical properties of the lens. You might be asked to find the focal length. Okay, and we'll do that. But there's six, six points that you do need to uh, understand in order to describe the location of things. Um, so the focal points are one of them. And there's a front focal point and a back focal point. Then there's a vertex on either side of the lens. So the vertex is the point where the interface, the surface of the lens crosses the optical axis. So those points here are represented by V1 and V2. The surface of the lens, so the, this, the glass air interface. And then. Well, I'm getting there. And then the last two points are called the nodal points, or the the, yeah, the nodal points H1 and H2. Um, what those are, if you have light that's collimated coming in from one direction and it gets focused to the focal point, what's actually going on inside the lens is there's a refraction at the first surface, so the light gets bent. There's refraction at the second surface, so the light gets bent some more, and then it focuses down to this point. Well, if you think of the lens as a black box, and you don't want to think about what's going on at each surface, but you want to treat it as if it was existed at a particular plane. So you want to treat it as a thin lens, then the apparent location of that lens would have to be this principal plane. It's the trace a ray from the front and a ray from the back and look where they would intersect if they didn't experience the refraction at the individual interfaces, you'll get a series of points as you do it for each individual ray. Those points actually lie along a curved surface. But the plane, which approximates that curved surface and is tangent to the curved surface at the optical axis, that's called the principal plane. So uh, approximately, the principal plane is the surface where all the collimated rays in one direction would intersect the focused rays from the other direction if they were traced through the lens without considering the refraction of the surfaces. Okay, so you see these dotted lines here that show these rays continuing, and they intersect at these points. Those points are nearly planar, but not quite. So the focal plane is just the or the principal plane is the approximation to that. These points H1 and H2 represent where they cross the optical axis. Those are important because that's where the focal lengths of thick lenses are measured from. 
I have to go back a step. I already said that we had these focal points. And it can be useful to describe where those focal points are relative to the vertex. That's called, in this case, that's called the front focal length. Over here, for this diagram, that's the back focal length, depending on which side of the lens you're describing. Front and back, it's obviously arbitrary which, which direction you describe front. But if you have a lens that's designed to be used a certain way, like a microscope objective, it's probably mounted with a threaded thing. It'll, you'll, the manufacturer will know in which orientation you're going to use it, and they'll specify the front focal length, the back focal length. They'll also describe an effective focal length. And the point here is that this front focal length may be different than the back focal length. But the distance from this focal point to this point H1 is actually the same as the distance from H2 to this second focal point. So you can describe one focal length, an effective focal length, and not have to describe a front and back. Gregory? This curved surface? Yes, that's curved. There's a lot to keep track of. If you want to describe a thin lens, you can either describe its front focal length and its back focal length, or you can describe a single focal length and the location of these principal points. So it's much more complicated than just a thin lens. Okay, so you can use the thin lens formula. And you remember the, uh, you may or may not remember that when we derived the thin lens formula, we uh, looked at the refraction from a single interface, and then we took the image produced in the material, and we used that as an object for the second interface. We found a relationship between the object and image distance, and one of the things it depended on was the thickness of the lens. And so we wrote that expression with the right side of our equation looking like this. And we said, assume the thickness is negligible, and we'll define everything that's over here as 1 over f. We called that the lens maker's formula. Okay, well, if we no longer assume that the thickness of the lens is 0, we can describe the focal length. And this is the effective focal length. This is the focal length that we have to measure with respect to those principal points. It will be described by this expression. Okay, in terms of the radius of curvature of the lenses, of the sides of the lens, the index of the lens, and the index of the surrounding material. Okay, so that's not, not too different than the equation we used for a thin lens to calculate its focal length. It just has this extra term that depends on d that's not negligible. And if we use that effective focal length, then this Gaussian imaging formula still applies. We just need to measure the image and object distances with respect to those principal planes, not with respect to the center of the lens. Okay, so the formulas that we had, we can still use. We just need to generalize them a little bit. So where are those principal planes? Um, we, we will go through a method to find where they are a little bit later. I'm not going to derive it 
um, necessarily as a general case. But I will state the result that the principal planes are measured from these vertices. And their location is usually given by this quantity h1 and h2. Your book calls it s and r. But I'm not going to use the book's terminology because we've already used s to represent the object and image distances. So I think it gets a little confusing. So I'm going to use the uh, more standard notation of h1 and h2. These describe the location of these principal planes measured with respect to the first and second vertices, respectively. And if they're positive values, then they're to the right of the vertices. Okay, so they're a function of the focal length. That's the effective focal length that we had right there. The curvature of the surfaces and the indices of the material and the thickness of the lens. So calculating where these are is just a matter of plugging values in. If you get a positive value, it's to the right of the vertex. A negative value, then, is to the left of the vertex. So to find, if you have an object location, or if you have an object, Milton? H1 is positive, H2 is negative. Yeah. So there's a lot of work. If you have an object and you have a lens that you know everything about over here, the first thing you need to do is calculate the effective focal length of the lens. Once you do that, you can plug it in here, find the principal planes. Once you know where you're measuring from, you can then determine what S0 and SI are, plug them back up in here, plug in the focal length. So it's much more work. And I'm sort of emphasizing that because for all of this that I'm introducing right now, we're going to find out it doesn't matter later <laughs> if you use this paraxial uh, matrix, matrix approach. Mark? Can the H's be outside the lens? Yeah. And in fact, we're going to do, let's do an example. Um, and you'll notice that these formulas have a negative sign, and those don't. And that's because these are correct. I noticed this. There was actually an error in the book that had these with the wrong sign. I corrected it in the notes, and I didn't, didn't catch the fact that I had that formula appearing in this slide as well. So if you've printed out the notes, and you've got these formulas for H, they should all be positive signs. If you look this up in the textbook by Hecht, which is what I created these notes from, they all have negative signs. It's just wrong. So OK, let's look at an example. And this will be an example where those principal planes are outside of the physical lens. So let's say we've got this uh, meniscus lens. It's one where um, the radius of curvature has the same sign for both interfaces. So it's not like it's a biconvex or a biconcave lens. We call that a meniscus lens. And is this a converging lens or a diverging lens? Why? Right. It's thicker in the middle than it is on the end. So even though you can't necessarily call this a uh, convex lens, it's convex on this side, it's concave on this side, um, it's thicker in the middle than it is on the end, and that makes it a converging lens. OK, so um, first let's just draw a diagram for what the rays are doing. We've got 
let's say, collimated rays coming in on the, from the left. And the one that comes in on the optical axis is undeviated. One that comes in above the optical axis, it's going to get bent down. And if it gets bent at that first interface down, the way I've drawn it, it looks like it's kind of coming into the second interface normal. So maybe it goes, um, maybe it gets undeviated there. And in that case, it's very easy to find where this ray and this ray intersect. They intersect at this point. And therefore, that point, when I project it down onto the optical axis, depending on exactly how I drew this, maybe I didn't draw it as carefully as I needed to to demonstrate that, but that can be actually outside the lens. And would that be a positive or a negative value? That would be a positive value, the way I drew it, if it's to the right of the vertex. And we have to be careful which vertex we're measuring uh, with respect to. This would be measured with respect to this vertex right there. Gregory? We can always measure it. We can always locate H1 using this method or H2. So here we're looking for H2. But let's make this a thicker lens. And let's allow there to be some, some refraction, some bending of the light at that uh, second interface. I can always trace the rays back and find where they cross and then project down onto the axis to locate. In this case, that's H2. And we'll use capital H2 to represent the point and little h2 to represent the distance from the vertex. So this is just sort of a qualitative way to do it. If you actually went through and carefully you know, figured out the angle of the surface at the point here and the point there and did a proper ray trace where you got all the angles exactly right, you could use geometry to locate that point. Um, I'm not attempting to do that, though. I'm just demonstrating the principle. Yeah, so it's, let me go back to that diagram. Uh, we're dealing with this situation here where the collimated rays are coming in from the left and are being focused on the right. So the focus is on the right. That's the second focus. So we're considering the first focus the one that occurs before the lens, the second one the one that comes after the lens, and we usually work left to right. So it's the second focus. It's the second principal point, H2, that we're finding. Okay, so let's find the effective focal length of this lens and where it's measured from. So the index of the lens is 1.5 and it's in air. So in our equation, we can plug in for the index of the lens 1.5. For air, we can plug in 1. That appears out here in the, it's a prefactor and it appears here in this term. Then we have to plug in the radius, the radii of curvature. The first radius 
R1 has a magnitude of 10 millimeters. Is it positive or negative? Why, Marie? It is positive. If you, have, if you measure with respect to the vertex, if the center is on the right, it's positive. Okay, so both of these curved surfaces are positive. R1 is 10 millimeters, R2 is 12 millimeters. That means the second surface is flatter than the first. So you can actually have this geometry. And so we just plug in those values. We had 1 over R1 minus 1 over R2 plus, and then this term that depended on the lens thickness, and that thickness is right here, and that's measured on axis. So the on axis thickness is 3 millimeters. You plug in that, and it's just a matter of you know, plugging the values into this expression to calculate the focal length, and we get 80 millimeters for the effective focal length. Now, that's good. That doesn't tell us where to measure things with respect to. We also need to know the location of those principal points. So again, it's just a matter of plugging and chugging. Uh, for H2, which we just drew up there, we have the effective focal length times the difference in the indices from the lens to the air times the thickness divided by the radius of the first surface. So we're finding H2, and it depends on the radius of the first surface. When you find H1, that depends on the radius of the second surface. So that may be counterintuitive, but that's the way it works out. And we can evaluate that. We get a positive number. Eight millimeters, so it's on the right side. So here's the vertex, and H2 is over here on the right of that. Yeah, so H1 is going to be over there as well. It's, if I evaluate that, it's 6.7 millimeters, and since the lens is only three millimeters thick, it's also going to be over there. So that's kind of interesting because it means that if you want to use this 80 millimeter focal length to find the object and image locations for this lens, you're actually measuring those locations with respect to points that are somewhere over here that are displaced from where the lens physically is. OK, so let's see. We can do an example. Um, where we have a compound system. You can treat any sort of arbitrary optical system in the same way that we treat the thick lens. We can describe its effective focal length if we know the position of its nodal planes. And we can talk about a front focal length and a back focal length. Right, so the front focal length and back focal length are obvious. If you have collimated light coming in, if it focuses to a point somewhere, the distance from that point back to this vertex is going to be the back focal length. And you can do the uh, same type of analysis in the other direction to find the front focal length. It might not be as obvious that you can find an effective focal length using both directions. But let's say this is my system. Let me uh, actually let me do a more careful ray tracing diagram first before I start to uh, generalize. It's just a very unwieldy length of stick. 
Yeah, thank you. Okay, so I'll draw an optical axis. And they're separated by 100 millimeters, so I'm going to go ahead and, gosh, this is in inches. <laughs> That's weird. <laughs> All right. Oh, but it has fractional values of a yard printed on it, too. <laughs> I've never seen that. Okay, so I'm going to let uh, one-eighth of a yard represent right, 10 millimeters. Okay, so this is my location of the lenses. I'll draw those in as, as lines. These individual lenses are thin lenses. But because they're in a combination where they're thick, their separation is large, I'm going to have to sort of treat them as a thick lens, not as just all being located at a single point. OK, and the focal length is 200 millimeters, which means um, this would be f1, and this is f1. So this distance and this distance are 200 millimeters. And then right here, is f2, right? Here is f2. And now let's look at rays that are parallel coming in. These are being measured from the center or the vertex because they're thin lenses. So this is a, yeah, a thin lens system. So that thickness is negligible in its equivalent. So let me first look at rays that are parallel to the optical axis coming in from the left. And that will let me find the back focal length and principal point H2. Okay, So I'm going to do this just using my thin lens uh, behaviors. So a ray parallel to the optical axis should go through the focal point. And this is the first lens, so it will go through f1. And I'm not going to draw it through the focal point because it doesn't actually get there. It gets, gets deviated by the second lens. A ray through the optical axis is just going to keep going through the optical axis. Um, so the question is, what happens to this ray when it gets to the second lens? Um, to answer that, I need array where I know something about it. Um, I'm going to treat the light coming in from the first lens. I know it's all going to be focused to the focal point because it comes in collimated. My two, my two key rays are this one that goes through the focal point and the one on axis, which goes through the focal point. So all rays will go through the focal point. So I'll treat this as a virtual image, or virtual object, for the second lens. Okay. So let's see, I want a ray which is going towards
over here for the second for the second lens I will right so let's see a ray that comes out parallel would have come from f2 a ray that goes through the center is undeviated and a ray that's going towards f2 comes out parallel um, The problem here is all three key rays that I can draw for the second lens are identical. It's the ray along the optical axis. It's the one that goes through the center. It's the only one that's coming from F2, and it's the only one that's going towards the other F2. Okay, so actually, I've run into a problem here as far as just drawing these. Well, I want to use these, these rays as they're drawn. But what I can do is I can use my uh, imaging equation to guide me. So I know that 1 over the focal length one over the object distance plus one over the image distance. And if I do this for the second lens, the focal length of the second lens is minus 200 millimeters. Basically what I'm going to do is I'm going to calculate where the object is. Or I know where the object is. I'm going to calculate the image. I'll draw it, and then I can just draw the rays to that point. OK, so what is my object distance here? I think I heard the answer, but it wasn't very loud. Okay. Minus 100, because the rays are converging. At this point, they're not diverging from an object. They're converging towards an object. So it's not an actual object. It's, an, uh, it's a virtual object, and that makes it a negative distance. OK. so. Um, I can write this as minus 1 over 200 equals minus 2 over 200. And so this last term has to be 1 over 200 millimeters. So equating those, SI is 200 millimeters measured with respect to the second lens. which is actually right there at the location of that second focal point. Okay, so the first lens is focusing the light down. The second one decreases the amount of convergence and results in it being focused right there. Okay, and so I can describe now some of these parameters. The back focal length is this distance. Just the focal length, or just the distance to the point where the final image was, 
measured with respect to the, the last surface that I encountered. Now, there's a couple ways to find H2 in the effective focal length. I can do it with the diagram I've already drawn. So I can just use a little bit of geometry. I can trace these things back, these final rays back and see where they intersect the input rays. And I guess I can say that Um, do you have an easy way of explaining that? So your point is that, um, okay, so what Marie is saying is that this ray was converging to a point 200 millimeters down the optical axis, but it got intercepted halfway there at 100 millimeters by the second lens. So this height right here is, let me call that y over 2. And this height over here is y. So you can, this is a similar triangle to this one. And because this height is twice that, this distance is twice that. So it's not a very systematic way to do it, but you can just sort of stare at the geometry and see if you can figure it out. Right? And uh, if that doesn't work, have Marie in your room. Maybe that will. OK, so if it's located 100 millimeters to the left of this first lens, that's a value of minus 200. Because we measure that, we're going to measure it with respect to that point. This distance was 100 millimeters. And it's, since it's to the left, not to the right, it's negative. So that's where the minus 200 comes from. And if you know that, the effective focal length is just where it would focus to if you measured with respect to that principal plane. So if this is h2 then this distance is the effective focal length. And you can see that's 400 millimeters. So H2 is measured from the second lens? It's measured with respect to the last surface that the light goes through. And if it's a single thick lens, that's the, the right surface. And if it's a pair of lenses or a series of lenses, it would be the last most lens. 
Okay, I'm going to skip the, uh, the working out of this one, uh, but I'll just show you that if light comes in from the right, the behavior is a little different. Right? The first thing, instead of converging and then getting focused over here um, 200 millimeters away from this lens, it first gets expanded. And so then when it converges, it has to go a much further distance before it focuses. And if you work this out, you get 600 millimeters. So this system is not symmetric. Um, but at this distance, which is the front focal length, then we get a 600 millimeters. And the effective focal length we already know is 400 millimeters from our last calculation. Then we know where H1 is. H1 has to be um, 200 millimeters back. This isn't quite drawn to scale. It has to be 200 millimeters back so that measured from there, the light is focusing 400 millimeters away. Okay, and from our diagram, that point is where this input ray intersects the focal, focused ray. So the reason I'm not going through and doing this on the board and spending more time on this is, like I said, all of this is going to be superseded by our ray matrix analysis. Okay, so you can analyze a compound system or a thick lens system. A thick lens system really is just a compound system. You've got two curved surfaces. They just happen to be separated by some distance. Um, we can do it using ray tracing. We may be able to just draw the rays. In certain situations, we may need to guide ourselves using um, our imaging equations. In order to describe a compound system as a lens, you need to define the principal planes that you're measuring the focal, the focal length with respect to and come up with an equivalent focal length. So it's a lot of work, but there's an easier way. I say easier, it's just more systematic. Wait. There are, there are six principal points, the vertices, the nodal points, and the focal points. The nodal, the nodal points, I pointed to them and called them the principal points. H1 and H2 are the nodal points. Let's talk after class. I'll have to look at the book. Okay, so we're going to use a uh, matrix formalism to describe how light propagates through a system. It's called the ray matrix formalism, the ABCD matrix formalism, or the paraxial ray matrix formalism, depending on where you, uh, where you look. The idea is that if we're talking about light rays, rays are just lines in space. And it take, takes two parameters to describe a line, right? It's, it's offset and it's angle if you like. Okay, so for example, this ray right here can be described by how far above the optical axis it is and at what angle it's propagating. You know that, you've completely defined the ray. So an optical system just takes an input ray and it changes it to produce an output ray. And so if you define an input ray by two parameters, you can express it as a vector where each element of the vector is one of those two parameters. And a system which operates on one vector and produces another vector is a matrix. That's the mathematical uh, construct that 
operates on a, a vector and produces another vector. So we can write an ABCD matrix. So we call it the ABCD matrix for formalism because we call the four terms in a two by two matrix A, B, C, and D. We can write an ABCD matrix for an optical system, and that will tell us how an input light input light uh, gets affected and produces output light, or an input ray gets converted into an output ray. The value in doing this is if you describe one optical system by a given matrix, and then you put another optical system immediately after that, you could take an input ray, propagate it through your first system, and figure out the output ray, use that as your input ray to the next system, and go through it again. And the equivalent uh, thing to do is to multiply the two matrices for the systems together and produce a compound system. So if you can understand, and if you know what the ABCD matrices are for every element in a system, you can just chain a bunch of elements together, do some matrix multiplication, and figure out the matrix for the full system. And we'll also see today, today or tomorrow, we may not get to it today, that if you, if you know the ABCD matrix for a system, you can pretty easily find things like the focal length, where the light focuses to, um, all the behaviors of the system that we're going to want to understand in terms of where the rays go. You could still use a two by two matrix, but each of these values themselves would be three dimensional coordinates. So this would be a three dimensional coordinate, and this would be a three. This would be also a three dimensional vector. So these would be the elements of this vector would be vectors. Right. If you'd like, you could turn that two by two into a. Um, a six by six block diagonal where all the block diagonals are identical. There'd be three block diagonals that are two by two matrices that are identical to this. Okay, that's a little bit more general. We'll focus on sort of the uh, two dimensional case where light's propagating in one direction and we have its um, position and angle measured with respect to the optical axis. So this will be useful um, for anything with cylindrical symmetry. So let's start with a simple system, and that is distance, just free space. We've got an input plane here and an output plane there, and there's some distance between them, L. And let's derive what that ABCD matrix should look like. What we want is when we multiply the ABCD matrix times some input ray, That gives us the output ray. And what do we know about that output ray? Uh, is its angle changed? Not. So r out prime equals r in prime. And what about its height from the optical axis? Is that changed? Yeah, it is. So it's prop if it's propagating in an angle, 
the further you go, the further it will move with respect to the optical axis. So we'd say that the output height is equal to whatever the input height was plus any additional height that it gained due to the fact that it was propagating at an angle. So if r prime is a slope, the slope of the ray We'll let z be the direction of propagation. Then that slope times the distance of propagation is how much the height changed. Yeah. And we're using the paraxial approximation, which means the angle, if you measured it in radians, would be the same as the tangent which would be the same as the slope. So you can think of this as the slope, or you can think of it as an angle. As long as you do the angle in radians, those things will be equivalent. OK, so if we have this constraint on the output, what does that constrain our ABCD matrix to be? So we can take the general case of an ABCD matrix and an input ray and write the values for the output R, it's equal to A times R in plus B times R in prime. And likewise, for R out prime, that's equal to C times R in plus D times R in prime. And now let's plug in these relationships here. So r out is r in plus l r prime, and r out prime is r in prime. Okay, so just looking at this one, we can get our first result. Uh, c has to be equal to zero, and d has to be equal to one. For this to hold for any arbitrary r in prime and r in. Likewise, we can look at the uh, first constraint written here. And I see that A times, if I just match up the R in terms and say they have to be equal, and the R in prime terms have to be equal, then I can say that A has to equal 1 and B has to equal L. That's the case for a free space system for this particular system. So what's general? These relationships, r out equals this. This expression was general. These were the constraints for my particular system. So I can write the ABC matrix for this system as 1L01. That's obviously a very useful one. Anytime light propagates over a distance, you have a matrix that describes that propagation. How about the refraction matrix? Let's look at light going from one material to another material. 
where the indices of refraction are different. Okay, so we still have the basic ABCD relationship. Now what are the constraints? Um, what constraint, what's the first constraint that I have here on the position of the rays? So the position of the rays have to be the same at the interface because the path it takes has to be continuous across the interface. The slope gets bent, right? It gets bent according to Snell's law. It looks like uh, n1 sine theta 1 is n2 sine theta 2. And remember I said it's a paraxial approximation, so these angles are small. So I can replace sine theta with theta, and I can replace theta with r prime. Okay, they're all the same. I can write this as n1 r1 prime is n2 r2 prime. And that gives me my relationship. Now, if, if 2 is the output and 1 is the input, I can say r out prime is n1 over n2 r in prime. So. The output position depends on the input position. The output angle only depends on the input angle. There's no cross-coupling. The angles don't depend on the positions. The positions don't depend on the angles. That's going to give me these zero terms. And the fact that the output position is the same as the input position means the A term has to equal 1. And R out prime is equal to um, d times r in prime. So d has to be n1 over n2. Okay. So there's my ray matrix for going between two different materials at a, at a uh, planar surface. So we can put these two things together now and describe a slab. So maybe light's going through a window. That window has some thickness. We want to see how that affects the, the light. We can now do this without having to go through uh, that analysis of the constraints. We can just use our previous results. Our input ray first gets refracted by an interface. And so that's described by this matrix. And now as my optical system goes left to right, I'm going to describe the matrices from right to left. Because remember, when you take and multiply a matrix by a vector, the vector gets put on the right and then multiplies by the matrix on its left. And so this input vector would be over here. When it gets multiplied by this matrix, that tells you the vector describing the light just past this first interface. And then as we multiply by the free space propagation, that moves us over further in our diagram. And we multiply by another refraction. That moves us to the output plane. This should be n1 over n2. Yes, thank you. This should be n1 over n2 because we're going from material 2 to material 1, not vice versa. So I'm not going to do this for every example that we do, but it's worth, I think, going through the matrix multiplication because it's not, if you haven't done it in a while, um, it's not quite the same as just scalar multiplication. 
So let me correct that. Use the correct form for the third matrix. When you set these things up, a common mistake is because your system, optical system, is going left to right, it's, it's uh, easy to write your matrices from left to right. You have to write them from right to left because that's the order we do the multiplication. So. Is that backwards? Look over there. N1 over N2. Yeah. So. So I'll multiply these two matrices together. I have 1 times 1 plus L times 0. And then I have 1 times 0 plus L times zero times one plus one times zero and zero times zero plus one times n n one over n two. Now I multiply these two matrices together and I have one times one plus zero times zero. One times one plus L n one over n two plus zero times this term. I have zero times one plus n2 over n1 times 0, that term 0. And then finally, 0 times this term plus n2 over n1 times n1 over n2, which gives me 1. And I have an extra factor of 1 because I, that shouldn't be there. When I calculated this term, it was 1 times 0 times L times n1 over n2. No factor of one. You can always check these things by imagining a simple case. If n2 equals n1, then really this is just propagation through length L. So if those equal, that fraction goes to one, and this recovers my free space matrix. Okay, um, let's look at some more elementary elementary matrices for single elements. Um, this one is a little bit more complicated. It's the refraction matrix, not through a, a uniform, uniformly flat surface, but through a curved surface. This one takes a little bit of thinking. Um, here's a surface. And a light ray coming in, we know it gets bent by Snell's law. But in order to understand what those angles are, we need to measure them with respect to the normal. Well, the normal one thing I know about it is for a spherical surface, the normal will pass through the center of curvature. And it will pass through a distance r away. So if the ray is coming in at a height of r in, then I know what this angle here is. That angle is r in over r. All right, that's the paraxial approximation. The angle, that's actually the arctangent of r in over r. Those are the same for my purposes. This angle here, theta, 
what I called it in that diagram. Um, I drew a fairly specific ray that was parallel to the optical axis. Let me draw one that's not. So this angle between my ray and the normal is going to be this angle, which is just r prime, r in prime, plus this angle, which is the same as this angle. So theta is equal to um, this component, r in over big R, plus this component, which is R in prime. And notice the way I've drawn this. R in prime is positive. Its distance is getting greater from the optical axis as it propagates forward. Position is positive, And this lens, or this surface, has a positive radius of curvature. So these parameters are all positive. So that's theta in. Likewise, theta out, which is this distance, is equal to um, this distance, or this angle, r in over r minus. redefine that. Theta out is the angle of my output ray with respect to the normal. Right? I know the angle of the normal with respect to the optical axis, and I know the angle of the ray with respect to the optical axis is r out prime. So I can say that theta out plus r out prime. And as I've drawn this, is this r out prime positive or negative? It's negative. Right, so as I've drawn it, I have to account for that negative. This dashed line is parallel to the optical axis. This ray is going, as I've drawn it, is going down. So it's a negative slope. But the magnitude of that slope plus theta out has to be the angle of the uh, normal with respect to the optical axis. So I have that relationship. So I have these two expressions, and then I have Snell's law. And I'm going to write Snell's law like theta in times n1 equals n2 times theta out. So in the praxial approximation, where the angles equal the signs of the angles. And now just plug in the values that I have. And say n1 times r in over r plus r in prime equals n2 times, I have to solve this for theta out, it looks like r in over r plus r prime out. And now if I relate 
the input terms, or if I solve um, for the output term in terms of the input, I can say that. Uh, R out prime is equal to um, n1 over n2 r in over r plus r in prime Okay, so I end up with uh, two constraints now that I've written in terms of the output position and the output angle. The output position has to be the same as the input position because the ray has to be continuous across that interface. The output angle gets bent because of Snell's law. This tells me how the output angle changes as a function of the input angle and the position. Okay, because as you change the position, that's changing the, the uh, angle of the surface that it's hitting. And so relating these things... Remember to um, our general expressions that R out is equal to A R in plus B R in prime. And R out prime was equal to C times R in plus D R in prime. I can relate these things. R out equals R in means A has to equal 0, or A equals 1 and b is equal to 0. The second relationship says, okay, c, which is the relationship between r out prime and r in, has to be this term, this factor, n1 over n2 minus 1 all times 1 over r, as is written up there, and d D is the factor in front of the R in prime, which is N1 over N2. So you can go through any, really any system where you can write the constraints on the input positions and uh, angles of the rays and create the ABCD matrix. Okay, so now let's do what we did before, where we have two interfaces separated by a distance. This time, the interfaces will be curved. And those, this system is what is our thick lens. Right? Two curved interfaces separated by some non-negligible distance. So we'll write it as the product of three matrices. So first, we have a curved interface. So here's the matrix that we just derived for curvature R1. then free space propagation through a thickness D, and then a curved interface with radius of curvature R2. And as I've drawn it, R2 would be negative, so I'd plug in a negative value. Okay, also, at the second interface, because I'm going from index N2 to index N1, I swap the position of those N2s and N1s, and I can 
multiply this out and get an expression for, um, for the, the equation for a thick lens, the ABCD matrix for a thick lens. In this formula, this is the general formula, so I need to plug in a negative number if my system looks like this system. Well, if this surface here is concave, it's negative because measured with respect to the vertex, the center of curvature is on the left. So what I just want to point out is where we're going with all this. I'm going to skip ahead a few slides here. We'll come back to those next time. But let's say you want to find, for example, the back focal length of this system, which is just you illuminate, you have collimated light on this side. Where does it get focused to? This might be a camera. You have an image at infinity. Where does the film plane need to be to be in focus, for example? And what we'll do is we'll first calculate the ABCD matrix for that system, right? And we'll get this, this form. We'll assume that we have an input ray that's collimated and is propagating along the optical axis. So its slope is 0, and it's at some arbitrary height. And what we'll say is, after it goes through the system and then goes an additional length, so this is the ray matrix for propagating through a length, and I'm going to call the length that it goes the back focal length. After it goes one back focal length, its height should be 0, meaning it should have reached the optical axis. Now I have a matrix equation that I can solve for the back focal length. And it, I say it's a matrix equation, but this actually represents two equations. One of them depends on the back focal length and can be solved directly. So I can pull out one normal equation. Here it is. Solve for the back focal length to determine where that gets focused. And I don't need to worry about principal planes, nodal points, any of that, I know that this is the distance with respect to the, the end of my optical system. Okay? And we'll go through it. We'll do that example next time. <coughs>